Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about James Lind. This bloke was a, a doctor from Scotland who is uh, responsible for, for two pretty remarkable things, actually. So firstly, this bloke conducted what might very well have been the first ever clinical trials. Obviously, back then, a lot of, uh, a lot of science, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of experimentation was, was pretty touch-and-go in the mid-18th century. Uh, didn't have a lot of academic and scientific rigour, the sort of stuff that we're used to today. And it might not, might not sound like much, but Lind figured out that in order to get worthy and useful data, you need to very closely control, right, the circumstances from which this data is drawn. Pretty bloody cluey, again, in a time when scientific experimentation could get a bit, uh, uh, I don't know, loosey-goosey, I guess we could call it there. Now, that was the first thing. The second thing was his theory on how to cure scurvy or, or the, you know, the, the enormous amount of writing he did on the subject here. He was one of the principal, principal reasons that by the end of the 18th century, the British Admiralty ordered every single British ship to carry rations of lemon juice to fight off the disease. Now, obviously, we all know today about scurvy. We all know that it's caused by a deficiency of vitamin C. And, and we all know that, obviously, one of the best sources of vitamin C is, uh, is citrus fruits, lemons, oranges, what have you. Although red capsicum or bell peppers, I think you call them in non-Australian parts of the world, are also very high in, in vitamin C, along with uh, other disgusting stuff like broccoli. But still, um, back then, didn't even know what vitamin C was, didn't realise that citrus fruits were a great way to fight off uh, off scurvy. And Lind was, again, instrumental, instrumental in uh, in sort of opening people's eyes to that, as, as we'll discuss. Anyway, top of all this, this bloke was Scottish. I know I've got, I've got a lot of Scottish listeners uh, and a, a lot of fans of Scottish history tuned into the podcast as well. So I'm, uh, I'm very bloody pleased to present a bit of Scottish history that... Uh, doesn't end with the country going bankrupt or uh, someone, you know, orchestrating a transatlantic scam. So let's get to it and we'll learn what James Lind uh, got up to and what he was all about. So here we go. Uh, we're going all the way back to 1716 here when young James Lind was born on the 4th of October in Edinburgh up in Scotland. Now, his, his parents were merchants and his old man, who's also his name was also James Lind, uh, was very strongly connected to the Edinburgh medical community. Uh, you know, selling him stuff, all, all sorts of stuff like that. We don't, we don't know too much about this bloke as a, as a youngster, unfortunately. There, there aren't too many solid records, you know, or sort of biographical or autobiographical records that, you know, what he got up to throughout his childhood here, unfortunately. I mean, look, in fact, this is a wider problem here with, with Lynn because solid details on this fella's life are, are much scarcer than they should be more generally for a couple of reasons. Firstly, his story is very heavily confused. His life story and his personal, uh, you know, his personal life, very heavily confused by the fact that there was another bloke also named James Lind, who was cutting about at the same time, time as him. And and as well, on top of this, that other James Lind, right, who who's related to his cousin, was also a doctor and also spent a lot of time sailing around the world. This James Lind was the co-founder of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. And at one point, he was the court physician uh, for King George III. So he had a fair bit to say about himself as well. He was definitely, you know, a historically uh, notable person as well. And, and to make matters worse... Our James, right, not this other James Lind, our James Lind also called one of his sons James, so he went on to be uh, James Lind as well, and that James Lind ended up as a British naval officer who fought in the American and the French revolutions as well as in the Napoleonic Wars. So the James Lynds of the world in this sort of, you know, mid to late 18th century were, were having a good old time and it sort of, it, you know, it sort of muddies the waters. We're getting a little bit confused as to which James Lind we're talking about some of the times, which isn't ideal, obviously. 
Uh, so that was the first thing, the confusion with his name. The second thing is that because of the hugely important nature of his work, this is the other thing that sort of confuses our, our story of him personally, the important nature of his work meant that people sought to use it or build upon it or, conversely, discredit it, right, depending on their own personal biases towards what this bloke was working on. And as a result, this muddies the water even more as to what was true about James Lind, you know, as people sought to either whack him up on this great big pedestal or smear him off the face of the earth. Anyway... What we do know is that in 1731, at the age of 15 or 16, his dad organised an apprenticeship for him. James Lynn, the elder, he goes to one of his medical mates, this bloke named George Langlands, and he says, oh, good day there, old mate, how's it going? Yeah, yeah, good, mate, really good. Um, listen, wonder if you could do me a favour? And Langlands goes, oh, yeah, mate, of course, bloody, those bloody um, stethoscopes you've sold me a, a white hot love them, I do. They're absolutely fantastic. So anything for you, James Lynn, mate. Um, and Lynn Senior says, that is excellent, excellent to hear. Um, so listen. You know my young son, you know, James named him after me, greatest bloke on earth. I'll tell you what, I've had a bloody gutful of him recently. I'll tell you what, you know, he's 15 or maybe 16, I'm unsure. Um, but he's moody as hell. He's got a weird haircut. He's saying all these words I don't understand. He's, he's on Snapchat 24 hours a day. I'm just bloody sick of it. And Langland, you know, turns out, oh, he goes, yeah, mate, look, I know what you're saying. Teenagers, they bloody awful they are. We, we were never that bad back in our day. We were never that bad when we were kids, were we? Anyway, what do you want me to do about it? You know, what, what, can I, what can I do to help you? And Lynn Senior goes, he goes, mate, I know it's a hassle, but listen, have you got room for an apprentice? You know, just something to keep him busy. You can, you can get him to, I don't know, clean up the blood and guts and the viscera and whatever, teach him a you know, thing or two about cutting people up. Who knows? He, you know, he might even go on to be a, a medical and, and, and scientific pioneer rather than a bloody social media influencer like he wants to be now. And Langlands goes, mate, absolutely. Look, you know, he's a sharp kid. I'd love to have him on. Sounds like it'd be a bit, a bit of good fun. Get him, get, get, make sure he cuts his hair and send him over here. No worries at all. So Lind ends up apprentice to this George Langlands bloke and starts getting properly boned up on his, on, on his medicine, on his surgery and all that sort of stuff in the coming years. Now, he cruised around Edinburgh University in the early 1730s, although he never actually enrolled. You didn't really necessarily have to uh, at the Edinburgh Medical School in those days. It had just sort of just been, uh, just started out and they were pretty, you know, pretty lax on attendance. Imagine that today, you know, you walk, in, walk into a doctor's office and instead of a, uh, a degree from a reputable institution such as the, you know, the, the, the Kansas City Eclectic Medicine University, there's a bit of paper there that says, oh, you know, I once wandered into a couple of lectures here and there. Don't even worry about it. I mean, having said that, if you walked into my office as a professional consulting historian, um, that's just about the best I could tell you about how, yeah, my education went, really. So maybe maybe I could have been a doctor back then too. Who knows, based on, you know, my academic performance. Anyway, our mate Lind, all trained up as a ship surgeon, and he's finished his apprenticeship before the end of the 1730s. I, I, I wonder what those apprenticeships were like, actually, because... I mean, you know, you think of, you know, tradies, right? Tradies do all their apprenticeships these days and their bosses are always, you know, they're pulling the pranks on them. They're doing, you know, sending them off to Bunnings to get a left-handed screwdriver or tartan paint or a, you know, replacement bubble for the spirit level. Are you, are, do doctors also, you know, were they pranking their uh, their apprentices there by sending them to the med- medical shop? I don't know, to buy a left-handed scalpel or a battery-powered stethoscope? I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, whatever. Linda's all done with his apprenticeship, uh, and so in, in 1738 or 1739, he joins the British Royal Navy as a surgeon's mate. Now, he sails all around the world. He got involved in wars and battles and everything. Uh, to begin with, he was sailing under a bloke named Rear Admiral Nicholas Haddock, and he fought the, the Spanish under Haddock. 
Well, actually, no, I guess it's fair. I mean, I don't know if he was there fighting, actually, you know, with the, with the, with the cutlass and the pistol in hand. He was probably just patching up the blokes who were actually doing it. But still, yeah, he was involved. He was involved in, uh, in fighting the Spanish. And he was also involved um, in the, Austria, the War of the Austrian Succession, sailing on a ship called the Salisbury under Captain George Edgecombe. And he remained in the, the Royal Navy until 1748 when he finally retired and he moved back to Edinburgh. But in the year before that, in 1747, this was when he was on the Salisbury and it was when he made history by conducting what very well may have been the first ever clinical trial in history while trying to find a cure for scurvy. So let's pause Lynn's story here just a little bit to talk about the disease, to talk about scurvy here. Now, it causes all sorts of stuff. The symptoms are, you know, pretty, they go from mild to pretty horrific the longer it goes untreated. Exhaustion, soreness, bleeding, gum disease, right up to, you know, very bad infections and, and even death ultimately there. Now, as most of you will know these days, it's a disease that is caused by a deficiency of vitamin C. But I think, as, as I've already mentioned, back in Lynn's day, they didn't even know that vitamin C was a thing, let alone, you know, that, it, that a lack of it caused scurvy. And um, obviously, back in the days as well, you probably heard of uh, you probably heard of scurvy being a uh, you know a pretty horrific disease for 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 anyone who is uh, you know spending a prolonged period at sea during this uh, during this time in history. And so it's been a pretty big problem. And especially Britain, as one of the you know foremost naval powers at the time, spent a lot of time on the sea. They did, and uh, it was particularly hard hit by scurvy as a result. It was probably a bigger problem uh, for the British than maybe any other nation on earth, based on the fact that they were such a you know a seagoing nation. Um, and in fact, Lind himself estimated, uh, while you know, while writing about scurvy, while researching it, he estimated that more British sailors had died of scurvy than had been killed by fighting the French and the Spanish combined. So, in short, it is a bloody big deal. And there were horrific examples of it ravaging naval expeditions everywhere. One of the worst examples uh, was Commodore George Anson's uh, circumnavigation of the world between 1740 and 1744. This was as part of the the War of Jenkins' Ear, uh, which is the sort of war you would think would be a great uh, episode of Half Us History. It's not very boring. Just a regular bog standard trade war between. Uh, well, ultimately, start off as a trade war, ended up as a, an actual real killing people war uh, between uh, between Britain and uh, and Spain, and um, it, it sort of was. It ended up blowing up into the, a larger conflict, which became known as the War of the Austrian Succession. So again. Pretty boring stuff, but a very cool name all the same. Um, anyway, so George Anson, he's gone around the world uh, sort of messing with uh, Spanish shipping, attacking and, and pillaging uh, Spanish ships, and he ended up coming home with a huge amount of treasure. But what he didn't come home with was a huge amount of surviving sailors. He left with over 1,850 men in eight ships, and he returned with just 188 of them aboard a single ship. So nearly 90% of his crew was 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 killed and and most of them the majority of them died of scurvy so it's a huge big problem huge big problem I mean they come home in this big treasure ship ship and Nansen was hailed as a hero you know paraded through the streets with all this treasure that he'd, he'd nicked off the Spanish but I mean you know he did lose a lot lost a lot of men to scurvy while he was sailing around the world there I mean it was such a big problem for the Royal Navy that it was said to have caused the death of a million British sailors in the 18th century. These, these were serious estimations that were being thrown around at the time, and, oh, and, you know, and since then as well. Although, recently we've sort of sobered up a little bit with our estimation of scurvy. As historian Nicholas Roger points out, uh, that figure implies that everyone who served in the Navy died of scurvy approximately twice. So... In all honesty, its impact may have been a little bit exaggerated. But the reason for that is a lot of ship surgeons had a habit of blaming deaths that they couldn't explain 
on scurvy. So often it was stuff like typhus or malaria, right? Uh, you know, other tropical fevers or, or, or other stuff that was killing them. But because, you know, they didn't have the most refined or advanced medical understanding back then, a lot of ship surgeons, oh, it's just scurvy, scurvy got them again. So the death toll for scurvy may be a little bit higher than we thought it to uh, think, you know, it actually was in reality. But all the same, you know, despite the exaggerations and whatever else, it's still a huge, big, huge problem, big, huge problem for our mate, uh, our mate Lind and, of course, all of his, all of his seafaring mates there uh, back in the, in the mid-18th century. So... Linda's determined to do something about it. So what he does is this. He knows as well, he knows as people have known for a long time, thousands of years, they've known that citrus fruits, uh, you know, could be used to treat scurvy. But the idea hadn't really caught on. People didn't really see it as a cure. It's kind of like, you know, if someone's got a cold these days, you say, oh, I'll have some chicken soup. It'll be good for you. It, it was it was on that sort of level. We, you know, they didn't realize. Nowadays, we know it just straight up cures scurvy, right? But back then, it was more of a sort of, oh, you know, give this a go. It might, it might make you feel a little bit better. And even Lind, as a doctor, he didn't, or as a ship surgeon, he didn't think that that citrus fruits were a proper cure for scurvy. At the time he ran this famous experiment, he believed that scurvy was actually caused by um, a bunch of different things, inactivity, a lack of fresh air, poor diet, all sorts of stuff there like that. Um, and he also believed that the the symptoms of scurvy internally involved the putrefaction of, of food that was in the body and therefore tissue that was also part of the, yeah, part of the victim's body there. Um, and he thought that this... Uh, this disease and this putrefaction could be treated with acids, right? Hence, citrus, because, of course, citrus full of citric acid. So reasonably sound medical logic for the time, I would say, but there are plenty of other acids, aren't there? Plenty of other acids. And this brings us to the famous experiment that Lind conducted in 1747 aboard the Salisbury shortly before retiring from the Navy. He's aboard this ship. They've been sailing for over two months, about, about 10 weeks on the sea, right? And 80 crew members aboard the ship have contracted scurvy. It's terrible. This is out of a crew of 350 as well. So it's a fair whack of blokes. Now, Lind, he's got a bunch of different treatments available to him. Again, he thinks that anything with an acidic property is going to help treat, uh, you know, treat this disease in these poor sailors there. But rather than just sort of, you know, hand them out willy-nilly and just hope for the best, rather than just sort of chuck around these treatments here, there and everywhere, he decides to gather some valuable data on this mission. He gathers together 12 blokes who were, in, in Lin's words himself, this is what he said, he, said, he, tried, to find, uh, he tried to find men who were as similar as I could have them. And he divided them up into six pairs of two. Now, this might not seem like much, but... You know, ideally finding test subjects who were the same sort of size and the same sort of weight and the same sort of level of sick as well, right? Even stuff like this, it wasn't widely practiced in scientific experimentation at the time. You know, this guy was factoring in selection bias. He was fighting off one of the things that could throw results out by controlling all these variables here. So he's doing a, I mean, pretty clever of him. You know, showing a desire for scientific accuracy that was a, a a fair bit ahead of his time here. Anyway, 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 he's got these blokes together. He gets he gets these twelve fellas together. You know, they're all obviously feeling like death, warmed up, and he sits them down and he says, oh, "You know, you know, g'day, g'day, fellas, how you going?" Well, pretty badly, obviously. But I tell you what, you're all, you're all crook as anything. That's my professional diagnosis. You're 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 just absolutely you're crook as all buggery here. But I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to sort you blokes out. No worries at all. Maybe learn a, a thing or two as we go here. What we're we going to do? 
We're going to split all of you into pairs, right? And each and all you know, all the blokes start nervously eyeing off each other. You're trying to trying to get them organised silently, like you do, did in primary school when your teacher said you're going to pair off. You know, you try to silently organise who you're going to be in a pair with. Um, we're going to organise you blokes into pairs, right? And then what we're going to do: each pair is going to get a different treatment, and the first to recover wins. So ready, set, go. Here we go. He goes to the first pair, and he says, "Here you go, you blokes." You're on uh, just over a litre of cider each per day. And these blokes are like, oh, bloody loving it. Fantastic. This is fantastic. Thanks, Doc. That should sort us out one way or the other. Bloody excellent. Loving life, obviously, you know, a litre and a half of cider. And the other, you know, the, the other ten blokes are going, oh, jeez, this is bloody good. I'm already liking this. This looks, this looks like it's going to be fantastic. Now, he goes over to uh, the second pair now. And uh, he pulls out a bottle of vinegar. And he goes, all right, so you two. You're having uh, you're having eighteen mils of vinegar a day instead of the cider, and and they look at you know these two. They're looking over the first pick, going bloody well, those lucky bars over there getting cider. We're on the vinegar, bloody bugger this. What's going on here? Why can't we have the cider as well? You know the third pair, the third the third pair, they get given this weird mashed up paste thing that's made of radish and garlic and mustard and myrrh and all sorts of other bits and pieces. Now, obviously not going to taste great, but it look at least it looks a little bit like medicine. So, you know, they're grumbling a little bit, but whatever, off they go to, you know, choke down this this paste that they've been given. And then Lynn goes over to, uh, to pair number four and he says, yeah, yeah, you blokes, catch, catch. And he, uh, he chucks them two half pint glasses, right? Just over 230 mils. And he says, all right, fill them there with seawater. Each day, boys, and down the hatch you go every time. You know, once a day, half a pint of seawater for you. And they're going, "Are you kidding, mate? Are you kidding? We go from cider to vinegar to bloody seawater. Come on, Lindol, mate. We can't have bloody. Why can't we have cider as well? This is bloody unfair." And Lind goes, leans in, he says, "Mate, if you think that's unfair, wait till you see what pair number five are getting. Because pair number five, uh, you know, after having seen how bad things are starting to get, they they're pretty bloody worried. You'd reckon they're pretty bloody worried with good reason because Lind pulls out some." sulfuric acid and these blokes are going no 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 come on i think i think we'll just stick with the scurvy to be honest like what are you doing bloody giving us sulfuric acid what is this cover mate what's this about and then he goes uh excuse me boys but who out of us is the doctor that's right it is me so if i say you're going to have bloody sulfuric acid then you're going to take the bloody sulfuric acid is that clear in in fairness he does water down the acid at least so it, you know it doesn't i don't know burn holes right through their tongues and they're on 25 mils of that a day anyway by the time he gets to pair number six, they are bloody crap in their dacks. They're trying to sneak away all quiet and, you know, hide in the cargo hold to die peacefully rather than eat live scorpions or wrestle a croc or whatever Lynn's last treatment is going to be here. But Lynn goes, no, 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 you blokes, don't even worry about it. I've saved the best till last. They, you know, they're flinching away from him like he's going to bloody belt him. And then he pulls out a stack of oranges and lemons and says, right, Boys, two of these here oranges, one of these lemons every day down the hatch, easy as that. And the other groups, they're all going, what the, what the bloody hell is this? Why do they get an actual, you know, fruit, proper actual foodie while we're on bloody weird paste and seawater and sulfuric acid? And these two blokes getting bloody oranges and lemons. You know, the two blokes behind Lynn's back, bloody pulling faces, sticking out their tongues and laughing at them like that, having a great time there. But this is what happens. These are the these are the six treatments that are given out to people. There's seawater, there's cider, there's vinegar, there's that weird paste, there's sulfuric acid, and of course oranges and lemons. And the experiment goes ahead. Lynn controls as many of the other various variables as possible. They're all eating the same food. They're all kept in the same conditions. The only difference was the different treatments that they got. Now, obviously, I don't need to tell you the results of the experiment. You probably know them beforehand. Lind recorded that within a week, in six days' time, right, the blokes that were given the oranges and the lemons were back, hale and hearty, ready to go, climbing up the riggins, back to their normal job. Actually, only one of them went back to the normal job because the other one, this is not a joke, the other one 
stayed and helped Lind as a nurse for the other sick uh, test subjects who were obviously still under the weather because they're drinking sulfuric acid, which is not going to help with scurvy. Anyway, this might not sound like much. And I've said that a few times. I'm going to say it a few more times before the end of the episode. This might not sound like much. But Lind gathered extremely precise data under controlled conditions and demonstrated a highly unusual amount of scientific rigor in conducting his experiment like this. Now, you know, I don't know what was going on with with some of those treatments. Imagine being sick with scurvy and the doctor is like, here, mate, you know, gulp down this great big delicious glass of seawater. That'll fix you up. But we were finally properly on the way towards curing scurvy and towards setting a, a standard of scientific rigor with medical experimentations. Now, we'll leave the experiment there for just a moment because I want to continue the story of James Lynn because it's a f- it's actually a few years um, after this that he actually does anything with any of the data that he gathered here. So we'll, we'll, we'll pause the story of Scooby there, go back to Lynn now. As I mentioned, he retired from the Royal Navy shortly after this experiment uh, and he went back to Edinburgh where he spent time uh, completing a thesis and becoming a, a proper fully qualified medical doctor rather than just a ship surgeon. Now, for some reason, he decided to specialise, of all things, in venereal diseases. Of all things, what, like, why venereal? Like, okay, it kind of makes sense. You know, he definitely had a, a fair bit of experience with him working on a ship, obviously, with, you know, all the sailors coming in and out of port and whatever else they're like that. But still, why venereal diseases? This, this really makes me wonder, what's the process for this sort of thing? Like, even today, you know, do, do doctors get to choose their speciality or do they get given them randomly? You know, at medical school, is, is the student with the worst marks each year forced to become a proctologist? You know, because who's, who's choosing to be an arse doctor? I kind of imagine, like, it's like in PE, you know, when you're a kid in gym, in high school, all the, you know, all the good ones, like the... Oh, no, actually, I mean, there's no, they're all going to be a bit gross, aren't they? There's no, there's no element of being a doctor that isn't like kind of gross on some level there. But still, you know that the ass doctor is, you know, the, the, the specky kid who can't kick a ball straight and is being picked last in gym class every single time. You know that's how it works. You know that's how it works. And I bet doctors will deny it. I bet, if, I bet if you ask a doctor that's how it works. I, I reckon if you went to a proctologist and you said, mate, were you the worst in your class and is that why you're an ass doctor? They'll say no. They'll say no. They'll say no, 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 I chose it because I love, I, I just absolutely love my work, love, you know, the bowels, rectums, all that sort of stuff. Really, you just, yep, a, a big, big fan. No, nah, of course not. You know that's how it worked. You know that's how it worked. Anyway, Lind becomes a doctor of venereal diseases, apparently by his own choice. He defends his thesis in 1748 and he goes into practice uh, in Edinburgh as a, you know, as a, a fully qualified medical doctor here. Now, He's not just spending his time inspecting, you know, willies and fannies that look like leftover pepperoni pizza here. No, 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 no. He's also spending his time writing a book with the rather hefty title of Treatise of the Scurvy in Three Parts, containing an inquiry into the nature, causes and cure of that disease, together with a critical and chronological view of what has been published on the subject. Bit of a wordy old title there, Lynn, mate. Might have wanted to pare that down a little bit, but all the same, he could walk the walk. Uh, you know, not just talk the talk, because it was based on his extensive experience with scurvy while at sea. Obviously, he'd been, you know, sailing around the world for, you know, basically a, a decade. So plenty of hands-on experience with the disease. Um, this book is published in 1753, and it's 450 pages long. So, you know, of d- d- decent length here. And, um, you know, look, I don't want to be too hard on the bloke. I don't want to be too, you know, I don't want to come down too too hard on James Lindy because obviously he's doing his best. But... It's probably important to note that a lot of the stuff in the book, like a fair, a, you know, a fair whack of stuff in this book here, um, 
Totally wrong. Like, absolutely, totally wrong. So far off the mark. Lynn still believed that scurvy was caused by the stuff that I mentioned before. Sailors not exercising enough, unhygienic conditions on a ship, you know, rubbish food that was on offer while sailing. And look, the last one actually kind of comes close to the mark. And the other two obviously wouldn't wouldn't have helped the situation very much either. But a lot of the stuff that he, you know, a lot of the stuff that he was saying was a little, little, little iffy there. In any case, the most important passages in the book, on, on more than one level, are, of course about the experiment that he conducted conducted aboard the Salisbury there. And you know it was it was the reason it's so important. You know not only was did it sort of pave the way for a start to start to understand that that citrus fruits were a cure for scurvy. It was also the first account of again what might have been the very first clinical trial ever conducted. Lynn talked about how he selected sailors that were as similar as possible to each other, how he organised their treatments, how they fared afterwards, the whole thing, right? The whole thing. He he, he put it all down very clearly, clear as anything there like that, and, and demonstrated just how seriously he had taken this whole uh, experimentation process, you know, the whole, the whole process of putting the trial on together. And, you know, after he had explained all of this sort of stuff, he went on to write a conclusion about what the experiment had taught him, and, and this is what he wrote here. <clears throat> To what has already been said of the virtues of oranges and lemons, I have now to add that in seemingly the most desperate cases, the most quick and sensible relief was obtained from lemon juice, by which I have relieved many hundred patients. So not a bad result, you'd think. A pretty strong conclusion, sure to set medical history on the right course, consolidating the case for the, you know, back then anecdotal effectiveness of citrus fruits as a cure for scurvy. Obviously, Lind had come across a gold mine here, and this was going to change the course of medical history. Wasn't it, right? Uh, no, nah, no, unfortunately not, not at all. Despite Lind definitely recognising that citrus fruits were a positive treatment for scurvy, and despite being such a big fan of them while working at the sea, obviously you, working on the sea, you know, using them to, to help people uh, get, get cured of scurvy, he still failed to put them forth as the, the, the be-all and end-all cure for the disease. He really missed the mark. It's so, so unfortunate. The, the fact of the matter is, that even after this test and even after writing this book, he still believed that scurvy had a range of different causes and he didn't believe that one single treatment was enough to cure it. Now, the evidence was right there in front of him, but unfortunately, he didn't quite manage to grasp it. Now, look, that's not to say he thought citrus was no good, as you know, as he wrote in, in, in this book. He, he clearly believed that it had some, some sort of curative power, but he failed to realise that it was the cure for scurvy, and he still promoted other treatments like malt infusions and the like, and you know, and other and other uh, other ways to deal with it. Now, you kind of missed the mark there, Lind, old mate. You, you you could have made even more medical history than you already did. But in fairness to this bloke, however, here's what he had to say in a later edition of his book, an updated edition, which kind of sheds a light on you know the the enormity, the almost hopelessness that the doctors might have felt back then in trying to deal with uh, such an enormous, such a huge medical problem back then. This is what he said. Many diseases have been well known and accurately described for above a thousand years, yet for which of them have we an infallible remedy? What medicine can counteract the continued influence of improper diet, air, and confinement, the last of which in particular I now judge to be a principal cause of the great obstinacy and frequent mortality of the scurvy in long voyages at sea. So, you know, what he's saying is there's all this stuff that kills us. There are all these different diseases we have to deal with as, as humans. And how many of these diseases have we actually found 
complete cures for. Very few, right? So it's not unreasonable from his, for his position to see that he puts scurvy in in that sort of, uh, you know, in that same category, a disease that doesn't have one single cure. Not unreasonable, unfortunately, just incorrect. So, you know, but look, let's give credit to the bloke. He still advanced the cause of medicine and still advanced the cause of science quite profoundly with what he did, even if he didn't, you know, quite take it as far as he could have. And, 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 despite having had a bit of a, you know, swing and a miss, a miss with scurvy, ultimately, Lin's work wasn't done. He still had more to offer the history of medicine. A couple of things here, which I'm going to tell you about right now. In 1758, Lind became the chief physician to His Majesty's Royal Hospital at Haslar, down on the south coast of England. And I'll tell you this, he bloody made that hospital ship shape very bloody quickly, I can tell you. The hospital treated a lot of sailors being down on the coast there, and Lind made a very interesting observation while treating all these sailors that were coming in and out, you know, after having served on ships. When sailors with typhus were brought in, how well they recovered tended to correlate with which floor of the hospital they were placed, which, on which floor of the hospital they were treated. The higher the floor of the hospital, the more likely they were to make a full recovery. Very intriguing. Lind was extremely interested in this phenomenon, and he started to investigate, started to do a bit of research and try to figure out what it was. Now, after poking about for a while, he realises something. The lower floors of the hospital were obviously much busier than the higher floors. They had people coming in and out all the time, and all the rooms and corridors were crowded with people, you know, people coming in, a little bit of treatment or visitors or, you know, staff or whatever, people just coming in and out. And again, just much busier. This means that, you know, the floors and the surfaces were, were dirtier, the, the patients weren't being washed and cleaned properly because they were presumably there for a shorter amount of time, the, the bedding wasn't being changed as regularly, and generally speaking, you know, because of the higher turnover of short-term patients and, and, and visitors coming in and out of the hospital on the lower floors, it was just a bit of a pigsty down the bottom, really, to be honest, just a bit of just, just a dirty old hospital down the bottom there like that. However... On the upper floors, where there were fewer patients overall, they're getting bathed and looked after properly. They're getting fresh clothing, bedding, new new linens, all that sort of stuff. They're like that. And because they're in there a bit longer, there weren't so many people cutting about, right? They're getting a higher standard of, 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 of hygiene, higher standard of healthcare, and therefore... And again, this sounds, sounds pretty obvious today, but basic hygiene like this was so often overlooked by the medical profession at the time, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, it wasn't until it wasn't until a bloke named Ignaz Semmelweis came along about a hundred years after Lind and started making outrageous suggestions, such as saying the doctors should wash their hands before seeing a patient. Now, poor old Semmelweis was was ostracised for his views on hygiene. He, you know, despite he, despite him reducing his patients' mortality rates to unbelievably low levels as a result of his, uh, you know, his his advancements in in the uh, in the field of medical hygiene, his story, it's not a happy one at all. Maybe we'll actually cover it in a future episode uh, because yeah, this bloke, despite being a, a medical visionary, he had a he had a rough old life uh, because of you know the 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 enor- the, the almost this pariah like state he, he he went into after after suggesting stuff like basic hygiene practices. Anyway, as I say, back in the 18th century, stuff like hand washing, linen changing, all basic stuff like that that we do today without even thinking, it was more or less unheard of. And here, once again, Lind proved to be ahead of his time. He realised that the people on the on the top floor receiving all of this, you know, all the, the, the clean sheets and the bedding and the, and the, and the bars and whatever else they like that, realising that they were were recovering from typhus pretty, pretty readily, right, he started to put in a very strict hygiene regimen in this in, in the entire hospital, from the top floor to the bottom floor. He ordered that every sailor brought into his hospital have all of their old clothes removed, 
They were then scrubbed to within an inch of their lives and they were shaved as bald as an egg and kept in clean bed linen. And wouldn't you know it, typhus infections more or less disappeared in this hospital just like that. And this had very real historical consequences. It gave the British a marked advantage in fighting the French at sea as their sailors were quicker to recover and didn't have to weather the ravages of typhus as the French did. But even after this, even after this enormous success in you know eradicating typhus from his hospital there, even after having done this, Lind wasn't finished. He had a couple more tricks up his sleeve as well here. So back in those days, the liquid ration on a Royal Navy ship was about three and a half litres of weak beer a day for each sailor. Now, beer, you think, rather than water. What, what, what is going on there? Some, some ships obviously did carry water, but it wasn't a reliable source of hydration for sailors, especially over, over long periods of time, as depending on where um, it, it came from, it, off, it would often go brackish or spoil or, you know, or, or it carried infections like malaria and, and, and whatever else, obviously, if it was uh, drawn from, from unsafe places. Beer. However, lasted for ages and ages. It, w- it was boiled during the, the brewing process, so it, uh, it, was, it was relatively clean, relatively safe to drink, even, uh, even after months. Um, and uh, wine and brandy also had the same, uh, you know, were in, were in the same sort of boat there. They could be, they could be safely drank after, after a long time of just, you know, sitting on a ship. So these liquids were used as the main source of hydration instead of water, right? Because, again, water wasn't always safe. Now, Obviously, water was still drunk, and you know there were some situations where sailors that do stuff like catch fresh rainwater by uh, spreading out sails horizontally and whatever else, you know, do that sort of stuff to uh, to to you know replenish or increase their stocks of fresh water. But in 1759, old mate Lind he makes a game-changing discovery here. Lind discovers that it was possible to get fresh, drinkable water from ordinary seawater. And I have to admit, I don't think I knew this before reading about Lynn's discovery here. If you boil seawater, the steam it gives off is fresh. It's not salty. The steam, not the water itself. Obviously, if you're boiling it and that sort of stuff, it, it, it doesn't boil the salt away necessarily. But the steam that comes off this boiling water is drinkable. It's, it's, it's fresh. It's incredible. Now, obviously, this would completely change everything about gathering fresh water while on long sea voyages as they could just boil salt water and, and capture the steam there. But the only problem was that there wasn't a reliable way to safely boil heaps of seawater while at sea, let alone catch all the steam, right? So Lind, after having made this discovery, he, he, he worked on a system that used solar energy to heat seawater but never quite got across the line with it, unfortunately. But still, the idea stuck. He obviously had planted a seed here that took a while to germinate, but once it did, you know, it, did, it again, took a while to, to properly catch on. But in 1810, in 1810, a couple of years after he died, a new type of ship's stove was invented that was able to uh, produce drinkable water from seawater by boiling it, capturing the steam, Bloody good on you. James Lind, once again, another ripper idea, failed to actually fully capitalise on it, but still all the same, get around him, what a legend. Finally. The very the one last thing one last thing we'll cover here about this bloke, uh, with his medical career here, um, uh, happened in around 1770. It might have happened as early as 1768, maybe as late as 1771. I'm not 100 percent sure. He wrote an essay titled "Get Ready: Essay on Diseases Incidental to Europeans in Hot Climates with the Method of Preventing Their Fatal Consequences." They obviously really liked a, a big long you know nice long title back then I reckon, but this work ended up pre- being pretty 
pretty important. Now, this this is definitely one of the more boring sort of facts about about Lin's achievements here, but his time at sea had given him all sorts of experience with tropical diseases and all the extra research that he'd done uh, since then as an older as an older bloke as well had allowed him to produce this bit of writing. You know, he's been involved in uh, in, in in naval medicine, in in well, ma- you know, naval health for a long time. A lot of exposure to uh, to the impact and the consequences of of, of diseases uh, from from around the world here. And believe it or not, this piece of writing that he does is so good. It's such a comprehensive and all-encompassing document that is so informative and so useful, right, that it becomes the industry standard medical text for doctors who are treating tropical diseases for the next 50 years. Now, to have published an essay that is so relevant, so useful, and so authoritative, thats I mean, that's one thing, right? And good on him for that. But to have it remain relevant for half a century, that is astounding. And once again, Lynn showed his capacity for medical brilliance. We've got him writing treatises on tropical diseases. We've got him figuring out ways to distill fresh water from seawater. We've got him treating typhus on a level that has never been seen before. And we've got him paving the way for not only the curing scurvy, but also setting the standard for medical clinical trials. This bloke had a very rich CV, I think it is fair to say. On top of that, he's still working as the chief physician at this hospital in Hasla. He continued to work there until his retirement in 1783 when his son John took over the position after having worked as his assistant for years and years and years. And I'm very, very happy to say that James Lind lived out the rest of his days after having retired in relative peace and happiness until he finally passed away in 1794 at the respectable age of 77. Now, after having told his story, I think it's a bit of a shame that James Lind isn't better known because the simple fact of the matter is that from go to woe, this bloke made the world a better place for us to live in. Everything that he did as part of his career as a medical man, as a ship surgeon, as a doctor, as a chief physician, everything he did has bettered our lives, even today, by the small and incremental progress of scientific and medical advancement. James Lind really does deserve a great big tick of approval, even from us today in the 21st century, because he helped to pave the way towards the medical advances that we take for granted today in 2019. He had a kind of unassuming brilliance. And, you know, while he unfortunately didn't manage to convert some of his truly genius ideas into the world-changing discoveries that they could have been at the time, I still think history owes a little more credit to Lynn than he currently receives. He was never showered with awards or praise in his lifetime. In fact, it was actually the other James Lind, his cousin, George III's doctor, who was the one who got all the limelight back then. He was you know, a mate of the kings and he was in the Royal Society, the whole shebang. And he was very much the James Lind of the day. But for such a modest bloke, our James Lynn did have an enormously strong, a hugely profound impact on both medical and maritime history. He's widely recognised as a pioneer when it came to the use of citrus fruits to treat scurvy, and people like Captain James Cook built upon Lynn's work until eventually the British Admiralty enforced this lemon juice ration that I mentioned before on all of its sailors, which more or less eradicated the disease from its ship's altogether 
which is huge, an enormous, an enormous achievement to have been even just a small part of. And James Lind wasn't even a small part of it. He, he, he set the scene for this to take place. And on top of that, I think it's fair to call Lind an absolute visionary for the way that he set up his clinical trial on board the Salisbury, insisting on using similar test subjects and controlling all of these different variables as best he could. Now, look, I'll say, I'll say it one last time. It might not sound like much today, but a controlled clinical trial like this was so far ahead of its time in the mid-18th century, and Lind, he really did demonstrate scientific brilliance in conducting it in the way that he did. The principles upon which modern medical and scientific experimentation are based were pioneered by James Lind, and for that at least, he deserves credit and recognition. But more than anything else, I think, it's important to recognise Lind as, as being a member of a group of people that are still around today, people who, day in and day out, toil away thanklessly and without a scrap of the limelight to make the world a better and healthier place for us all to live in. Doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals around the world still follow in the footsteps of James Lind, helping anyone who's in need of medical care, just as James Lind did in his hospital, in his private practice, and of course, on the sea. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of James Lind and the many quite incredible scientific and medical achievements he made throughout his life. And and, and just the fact that he was such a, a modest and quiet and unassuming bloke, I, I really do think that he's, he's, he's worthy of, of a little more historical attention than he currently receives. So I hope you've enjoyed his story. Anyway. That's that for this week. Uh, thanks for hanging out with me in another episode of half Ass History. Always great to hear from listeners who are getting in touch. Uh, every uh, every week I get a couple of emails from, from listeners, and I, I can't say much I appreciate. It's really nice to uh, to hear from people. I'm, I'm in the process of replying to them all, so I, I should get back to you. And again, if I haven't if I haven't re- returned your, your email, please just, just send me another one and I'll, uh, and I'll try to get back to it. Best way to get in touch with me, of course, is uh, is uh, via the website, um, halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form there. You can find old episodes um, and, uh, and, and find links to subscribe on iTunes, on uh, Spotify, on Android as well. Um, and also you can support the show directly through Patreon there. I've actually had a couple of people get in touch saying they might be interested in merch. Now, this isn't something that I was was particularly high on my agenda but look if the need if the, if the need if the need if the desire is there obviously you don't need stupid t-shirts with bloody Herodotus and sunglasses on the front of them but if you want one let me know because I, I don't know if enough people are going to want them then obviously I'll, I'll, I'll put them together and, and, and we'll figure something uh, we'll figure something out there but uh, look you know however you're supporting the show whether it's by chucking me money on Patreon or just tuning in every week and having a listen thank you so much and uh, if, you, if you want to tell your friends about the show as well that'd be uh, fantastic even if they don't listen even if they just go and click and click subscribe and you know maybe open it mute it and just have it going on in the background without listening. that's fine looks, looks good on the numbers so that, that's all I really care about anyway That's that for another week. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. Back next week with more Half-Ass History. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. We've got a science question. Of course, we've got a a very medical show this week, so another science-based question. Very appropriate here. Asked by Reddit scientist Respect Spectre, who would like to know, does Lyme disease cancel out scurvy? (laughs) 